Tonight we're going to continue our discussion of enlightenment, what it is, and is it worth the trouble? <laughs> uh, tonight I'm going to, and, and once again, this is in general terms, we'll get into it in a lot more detail later as we go along. But tonight what I want to talk about is uh, what enlightenment is, its relationship to insight and mindfulness and, and uh, how these things culminate in the first stage of enlightenment. We probably won't have, I'll certainly answer your question, we probably won't have any need to talk too much about the way that person progresses from the first to the second, second to the third, third to the fourth stage. But uh, I'm going to focus mainly on what we're trying to accomplish uh, in our practice and how the specific things, the specific abilities we cultivate that cumulatively bring us to the point of awakening. Okay? But I do see that there are some questions from uh, last week. So I'll just address those first. Uh, when we watch a movie, we feel many emotions for the characters, but unless something's particularly close to home, we feel those emotions without suffering. Perhaps why we like movies and such so much. Is this kind of feeling without suffering, uh, without identifying what an, is that what an enlightenment, enlightened person experiences in general? And I think what he's referring to in this question is we relate to the suffering that we see uh, and we might experience the normal emotional reactions, but there's a, a, a kind of a distance, a separation. And in a sense, that is uh, somewhat similar to how an enlightened person experiences the suffering of others. They definitely feel compassion, but they don't themselves suffer as a result of it. But it's not quite the same thing. But it's very close. Why is it that when you see somebody suffering in a movie that you don't go through quite the same kind of personal anguish that you would if it were happening in real life right in front of you. Why? I can't do anything for them. They don't really exist for me to help them. Well, that may be a part of it, is that, yeah, it's, it's, you know it's a movie, and you know that you can't, you know, the, the movie's already been made, right? And you're not going to change what happened, so there's no point in you jumping up and running up towards the screen. I don't know. I've been to some movies with some women, and it doesn't matter that it's a movie. Well, still, it's impacted. Impacted. I've even cried in a movie. Well, we'll talk about crying in a movie too, or being afraid. People, people watch uh, thrillers, uh, scary movies, so that they'll 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 get afraid. Right? We'll talk about that too, but in terms of what you said, okay, and the other part of it is you know that it's not real. You know that it's just 
That's that's a rather important part of it, in fact. Um, and so you're in an interesting state of objectivity towards what you're seeing. A part of your mind is responding as it would if it were real. But it's kind of like the rest of your mind isn't getting dragged into it. Um, now what happens... There, some of these things are similar, as I say. If a person's awakened, then they know that the suffering the person has experienced is coming from themselves. Um, so they they have some information uh, that ordinary people don't have. Similar to when you're watching a movie, you have this extra information, you know, uh, okay, the script is written, it's performed, put in the can, every time you play the movie, it's going to happen the same way, you can't change it. And the awakened person knows, okay, this is what everybody in this world keeps doing to themselves. And so they would feel even more compassion for the person that they're observing than you would watching a movie. That's one one difference, is you feel much, much more uh, compassion for all of the suffering that you see in others. But you would have no suffering of your own because you know that it's not the way it appears to be. It's not that they're not real. And that's an unfortunate, incorrect teaching that sometimes gets it's disseminated. It's not that what you're seeing aren't real people who are really suffering because they are really suffering. But you know where their suffering is coming from. And you know that there's an end to it. And you know that the suffering itself isn't real in the sense that the person experiences it. But also know that to a degree, like the movie, there's nothing you can do about it. Because since it does come within, from within, the solution to it has to come from within. On the other hand, there is something that an awakened person can do, which is to help people realize how they're creating their own suffering in this way. Um, and, of course, this is all quite apart from whether or not you can do something about the situation. Somebody's beating up somebody else. Well, of course, you can do something to make them stop. But remember the difference between suffering and painful events and painful circumstances. And suffering, all suffering comes within, from within. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Suffering is what we do to ourselves. And so uh, an awakened person would do whatever they can to stop the pain. And they might do whatever they can to help the suffering person understanding where their suffering is coming from. But they have no, because they understand what's really going on, they have no need to suffer themselves because somebody else is suffering. Because they know there is a sense in which it's not real. And the analogy that I find really helpful for people in understanding this, is think, think of a mother with a young child, and the child is crying and screaming, they're scared. That child is suffering. 
the mother feels as much compassion as a mother can feel for their scared and unhappy child. At the same time, the mother knows there's really nothing wrong. The mother knows that the fear and and the anguish that the child is experiencing is all coming from inside itself. So what do they do? They try to comfort the child so they stop doing this to themselves. And so that's, that's the relationship of an awakened person that comes from a much deeper understanding of the nature of the suffering that they see. That makes sense? Um, as far as other things, we like the emotional states we experience, including sometimes our suffering. People become addicted to their suffering. Because when you suffer, you feel more real. And that's an interesting thing. Because what the Buddha taught us is that the reason that we tend to make ourselves suffer the way we do is because we have the mistaken belief that we really are the separate self that we feel like we are. And suffering has the effect of making us feel like we really exist. We really are. It makes us more solid in our own mind. And so we can become addicted to it. But we go to movies and we see a lot of things that produce emotions, not necessarily because we're addicted to those emotions, but because there's an aspect of those emotions and the way we deal with it that is fun, that's enjoyable. There's an aspect that's cathartic. The Greek tragedies were all about helping people get through the difficult things of life by dramatizing it and have everybody empathize with the players on the stage, go through this, and it was very cathartic. It was very cleansing. And and we like to do that. We like a really good movie that afterwards, you know, we've been emotionally cleansed. We've gone through all this stuff, heaven and hell, and, and now... Here we are, back on a brightly lit street in our favorite city with our favorite companions, and wow, is that ever nice. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm satisfied with the answer to how, how does an awakened person uh, experience the suffering of others? Okay. And then the other question here, from a few of us talking outside on Thursday night, we hear a lot about realized teachers who seem to have bouts with health issues, chronic pain, etc. Is this just circumstance, a function of age, or is there some weird correlation between enlightenment and body problems? If so, what's the deal? <laughs> um, somebody could do a proper study <laughs> and a statistical analysis to see if awakened beings have more health problems than others. But my very strong suspicion is no. <laughs> um, you, I would even expect that you would find less of certain kinds of health problems because certain kinds of health problems are related to the emotional trauma and, and the stress that, uh, that awakening relieves people of. But you know, there's another side to this that I've heard people say, well, uh, if you're awakened, 
why why do you have heart disease if you're awakened? Why somebody who's awakened have diabetes? Can't they just make it go away? They must not really be awakened. And that's total nonsense. The other thing, though, is that that uh, if if somebody's truly uh, has some degree of awakening, or there's four stages, so could be any degree, but to the degree that somebody has awakening, they're not going to suffer as much from whatever health problem issue they have. Uh, one of the things they mentioned is chronic pain. So chronic pain is not going to affect somebody who has a degree of realization in the same way that it's going to affect somebody who does not. Uh, same thing in general with other health problems. Somebody has some degree of realization, it's told, you've got cancer, this is going to happen to you, you've got a 50-50 chance, in six months you'll be dead. And it's not going to be as traumatic. So that's the kind of difference. But I would be very surprised to find out that there are any, any more health problems amongst amendments. And so please let me reassure you, if you've been thinking that there might be, <laughs> don't worry about it. You can go ahead and do this and not worry that, yeah, I'll be, I'll be awakened, but then I'll have a stroke. You know. <laughs> if you have a stroke, you'd have a stroke anyway. We're all going to have those kinds of things happen to us unless we get hit by a truck first. <laughs> but there'd be no suffering with the truck. But there's no suffering with the truck, right? That's right. There's no suffering with the truck. So I think last time we talked a little bit about the Magapala experience, the attainment of when you become a stream infant, when you achieve the first stage of enlightenment. Maga means path and pala means fruit. So it's the path and fruit experience. And in Sanskrit it's called the darsana marga experience. Marga is a Sanskrit word for path and darsana means to see. So darsana marga is a path of seeing. And both of these are referring to a singular event in which a person has a profound insight and that insight changes the way they view the world thereafter. And one of the things I did talk about before that I remind you of, is what I found, is that not everyone has that kind of singular event. It is not necessary. The other thing is some people have that kind of event and it doesn't change them. So... You can have that kind of singular event, but somehow the insight doesn't make the deep internal change that changes the way you see and respond to things thereafter. On the other hand, you can get to that same place without ever being saying, well, you know, it happened to me at 2.10 p.m. on April the 14th, you know, or even, well, it happened sometime in the second or third week of February 2010. Uh, sometimes you don't know when it happened. And that may seem confusing based on other things you've heard, but I think when I explain to you what it is when it happens and how it comes about, it'll be a lot easier to understand how both you can have that kind of experience and it doesn't work, or you cannot have that kind of experience and you still get to the same place. When you have that experience, what it is, is it's an insight experience. It is an experience 
that allows you to see the way things are in a very different way than you've ever seen them before. And when you have that experience, it's the culmination of a series of other insight experiences that have led up to it. So it's a culminating insight experience that, especially if you do certain kinds of practices, they'll bring you up to the point where you have that experience. But there's other ways to get there too. Okay, But the certain kinds of practices are particularly conducive to that kind of culminating insight experience. On the other hand, it can be triggered. That exact same experience can be triggered if you haven't done the work leading up to it, it'll be, wow, I wonder what that was. Oh, well, what's on TV? (laughs) (laughs) So I just, we'll come back to the Magapala experience, but first, let's talk a little bit about insight in general, meditation, and mindfulness. Okay? Did you have a question before we get into that? I was just not clear whether everybody gets the same insight or every person gets a unique there are little, uh, there are similar insights that everybody gets to greater or lesser degrees and in different forms uh, the more two people are doing the same practices the more similar their insights are going to be now the way the Buddha taught this insight is insight into some very fundamental realities, some very fundamental facts about human existence. And these are sometimes referred to as the three characteristics. And when he taught them, he taught them as uh, anicca, often translated as impermanence, but that's not terribly good translation. Anatta, which is no self, and dukkha, which is suffering. So it's insight into these three characteristics that uh, all of the different insight experiences you have are reinforcing these basic insights. Anicca, often translated as impermanence, is the realization that there are no things. That the most accurate way in ordinary language that we could describe reality is a constant flux. Everything is just constantly changing. There are, you know, nothing ever stops, even for the smallest moment. Everything is constantly changing. And everything is totally interconnected. Everything is affected by everything else. And everything affects everything else. And so, if you look at the totality of reality, it is one way of looking at it. It's not, it's not necessarily perfect understanding of it. But the way that's easiest for us all to get an initial grasp on it ultimate reality is this total flux of total interconnectedness. 
Remember I talked about a holograph? And the relationship is holographic. It's not, it's not a big gob of stuff. It's, it's more sophisticated than that. Every part of the whole reflects every other part. And so forth. Um, and so the illusion of separate things is exactly that. It's an artificial setting apart some part of the whole, which is constantly in flux, and pretending that it's a separate thing that's going to stay the same for the next five minutes or maybe the next ten years or whatever. But it isn't, and it doesn't. And so insight into impermanence is, is insight into there, that, that there isn't this kind of reality. Reality is different than that. Then no self is the insight into the fact that this separate, enduring, single self that I feel like I am is just as much an illusion as everything else that does not exist as a separate, enduring, single self. What my mind imagines as my separate, single, enduring self is once again just a part of this completely integrated whole that is dynamically changing constantly and wherever the boundaries put is completely arbitrary. The mind just, this is me? No, this is me. <laughs> and you go through that yourself. If you start trying, well, what am I? You know, you'll, you'll find, well, where's the line? <laughs> so, uh, so to realize that you're not the separate self that you are is the second important insight. Now, later on, a uh, number of centuries later, uh, a very accurate interpretation of this is that what happens when you combine no self to, uh, to, I don't want you to keep using the word impermanence because impermanence sounds like there's things, but they don't last. And, and that's not what it means. It means there are no things. There's only process. Well, what word will I use? Change. Okay. There, there is no self. There are no things. There is only change and interconnectedness. And they rolled these two up together and put another label on it, emptiness. So another way of having insight into impermanence and no self is to understand emptiness. The emptiness of the world means realizing that there aren't really those things out there. What there is is a process, and my mind chops it up into pieces, and any other mind could chop it up differently. And then my mind projects a nature on the chunk that it's separated out according to its needs and its proclivities and what it's capable of seeing. And so that some other mind could look at more or less approximately the same chunk of the whole and with the different, with different sensory organs, different mental proclivities, uh, different needs and desires would 
see it as having a different nature. And we know this. We know this all the time. We know that everybody in this room is probably going to agree a rock is a rock. But as soon as we start talking about people, you know, he's a great guy. No, he isn't. He's a total asshole. You know, right? <laughs> the more complicated, the more complex something is, the more I can guarantee you that we're going to all see it differently. Right? And that is emptiness. So emptiness is what I like to do is say, okay, you get insights into impermanence and you get insights into emptiness and you get insights into no self. No self of the world, the emptiness of the world is saying that the, the objects that I see and the people that I see aren't really separate and isolated and self-existent and they aren't necessarily anything like the way I imagine them to be. You know, I don't know who you think I am, but I bet it's not who I think I am. <laughs> um, emptiness of self, which is really the most important thing of all, because this is what liberates you, is realizing that that, that too is an illusion. That I, the, that boundary, you know, I can put it anywhere I want and it's only made up. And who I think I am in terms of the characteristics, I say, well, I'm this and this and this. That's just what my mind in this particular moment wants to believe. Because you can ask me tomorrow and I'll give you a different list. And my wife or psychiatrist could tell you that, well, actually, he's not that way at all. <laughs> he thinks he is. But when push comes to shove, he does this instead of that. Right? And we know that that's true of ourselves. The insight into suffering is the realization that all of our suffering comes from operating from the premise that we are a separate self in a world of separate objects and that somehow our mental image of who we are and what all these other things are is more or less reasonably accurate. And to think that about a universe that is, is empty, that is constantly changing, is guaranteed to make you suffer. You cannot go for very long at all operating on that misperception without creating suffering for yourself. Furthermore, all of our suffering comes from believing that we're a separate self in a world of separate objects, and what makes us happy or unhappy is our interaction. So we're busy fighting with the universe from the point of view of a separate self to get what we want and avoid what we don't want. And it never works for very long. Therefore, we're never satisfied. That's dukkha. The other outcome, of course, is that uh, as if there wasn't enough pain and discomfort in the world already, when all of us are trying to do the same thing, get what we think is going to make us happy and avoid what we think is going to make us unhappy, we create enormously more suffering for everybody else. So those, these, these are what insight is about. Insight into to change or flux, insight into emptiness, insight into no self. 
We're not the separate self we think we are. And then insight into the fact that clinging to illusions can only cause us suffering. All of meditation is about cultivating the mental skills and abilities that are going to allow you in many different ways to penetrate this illusion and see the truth. So you learn to control your attention, which normally is just going everywhere and you don't have any control over it. You learn to be mindful. The opposite of being mindful is going around in a state where all of your mental powers are focused on the wrong things and you're oblivious to so much of what you should be aware of. Uh, so you train your mind in stability of attention and mindfulness. And at a certain point, that mind now starts seeing, getting little glimpses of the way things really are, seeing through the illusions that the mind itself is projecting. So you will have, at, at some point, if you, and as I said earlier, depends on how you practice, the insights take different forms, but they're, they're going to teach you the same lesson in the end. But doing the practice that I'm teaching you, you will have insights into impermanence, flux, change. What will happen is you will have experiences where your attention is so refined and so stable that you see beyond all of the conceptualization that your mind imposes on sensory experience. Talking earlier about sensation and perception. You will see belong beyond your perceptions. Your perceptions are of things with particular natures that seem to be self-existent, and those natures seem to belong to them out there. You see through that, and you realize there is nothing but this constant flux of sensation. That's all there is. And so that is an insight into the first of the three characteristics. Very often what happens when you have that kind of insight experience is your mind is very uncomfortable. The whole Your whole world's dissolving under your feet. And it doesn't like that. So it goes back to this familiar place and makes sense of it. It's, oh, that's this and that's that. And if you catch that, and you will. If you, if you repeat this a few times, you'll catch the mind doing that. And when that happens, you've seen emptiness. You've seen how the mind takes this raw stuff of sensation and projects its own familiar reality on it and makes it into something that it's comfortable with and that makes sense to it. And it works. And it works. The mind has to do this, in fact. You cannot function unless your mind does this. Although, as you become awakened, your mind can do this in a much better way. But, you know, the mind has to construct a reality for itself that works and allows you to survive and meet your needs and carry on the necessary things that you need to do in the world. When we are exposed to classic optical illusions, is that in any way seeing past what we're making? Uh, classic optical illusions can be can be inside experience. What makes something like this an inside experience 
is when you realize what you're seeing. Somebody can have, maybe some of the people in the room have, you can take some psychedelic drugs and you can see everything dissolve into just sensation. And if you don't realize what it is you saw, it was scary and it was weird and you got to tell some stories about it, but you didn't have insight. Insight means the curtains open, you see, and you realize what it is you're seeing. You realize, ah, that's that's what was there before the curtain closes again and all you see is the images that are imposed on it. That's why preparation is so important. Uh, you'll have insights into no self. They come there are many varieties of insights into impermanence, any many varieties of insights into emptiness, and likewise many varieties of insights into no self. In meditation, you'll start to recognize those times when there is no, when the self's not there. You know, ever heard, in the walking there's only the walking, and the seeing there's only the seeing. You have those experiences. If you recognize them, then you have insight into, wow, whatever self is, it's completely optional. It doesn't need to be there. But you also have, as a result of meditation, you start to see how your mind functions and experience directly how your mind functions. And as a result of this, you're naturally going to get, you're going to catch your mind in the act of, generating self, the same way in the other insights you catch your mind in the act of generating a meaningful world out of sensations, you'll find your, you'll catch your mind generating the self out of the, out of the contents of its own mental content. And so there's a variety of different insight experiences that can teach you about no self. Likewise, you will learn about <coughs> suffering because You'll find yourself suffering, and you'll understand where your suffering is come from, coming from. I mean, finding yourself suffering is not the challenge. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's getting to the point that when you are suffering, that you understand where this suffering is coming from. You see the craving. You see the clinging that the craving brings about. You see where the craving comes from. Oh, well, this, this pleasure or this pain. And I have this, this thing just arises in my mind, this gloms onto it, and I want more of it, I want it to stop. And you'll see that the pleasure of playing leads to the craving, which leads to the clinging to the idea that, well, I'm me, and that thing is causing my pain, or causing me pleasure. And you just, you catch yourself getting caught in the story, and you see that what it does over and over again is, oh, more suffering. I did it to myself again. My mind, my mind did it to itself again. So, there, there are these different kinds of insight. They're described in the traditional literature as the gates, the gateways, the gates. There's several different gates you can go through. What they're referring to there is for most people, typically, one particular kind of insight will predominate. And that insight will then be the key to them 
having the other insight. And so there's some practices you can do, like the Mahasi style Vipassana practice that Spirit Rock and uh, IMS teach, and, and uh, Upandita is the head of that lineage in Burma. They teach a way of meditating that is going to put you face-to-face with impermanence. And when you become face-to-face with impermanence, it's totally unsettling to your mind. It leads to what's called the dukkha jhanas, and knowledges of suffering. And when you accumulate enough insight, you'll see through to the truth of no self, and then you'll be able to get past the whole thing. But the gateway is impermanent. There's other ways of practicing that your deliverance will depend primarily on insight into emptiness or insight into no self directly or even insight into suffering. As a matter of fact, I don't know that any spiritual tradition particularly promotes suffering as the vehicle for insight. But recognizing that life presents some people with tremendous opportunities in that way, suffering is one of the most powerful insight vehicles. But, so depending on what you practice, one of these insights is going to predominate, it's going to bring all the others along, and it's going to make you ripe for awakening. These insight experiences, when they come, it, as I said, it's only an insight experience. I mean, it can be exactly how the books describe it or exactly how some teacher describes it. But it's only an insight experience if, when you have it, you recognize what it's telling you. And usually, most of us have to have a variety of different experiences to really, to really get a particular insight. Sometimes one can be strong enough that, you know, that one's down. I got that one. Most of the time it takes a variety of insight experiences. And the other thing that's extremely helpful is for a person, when they've had an insight experience in meditation, and by the way, they don't always happen in meditation. Sometimes they can happen other times during the day. But when you've had an insight experience, then one of the things that's very helpful is after it's gone, you try to apply what you've learned to what you continue to see. If you if you have a glimpse into change and impermanence, then when the world seems solid and real again, you want to you want to continue to be aware that oh it's really not that way. No, it's not. That's consolidating it. And that consolidation is very important. So it's a cumulative effect of multiple insight experiences helped along by consolidating them with the rest of your experience that produces the necessary change. You're done with an insight when what you might be called in intuition or in the heart or, you know, if you picture it in psychological terms, the deep unconscious processes that determine how you see reality, when at the deepest level they shift and they no longer make you see things that way anymore. So when you've when you really achieved insight into impermanence is when no matter how solid things superficially appear to be, instead of seeing them as solid, you see them as changing. 
And the same is true of all of the other insights. Now, in the classic situation of building up to a Magapala experience, awakening experience, in that classic situation, what happens is through your practice, you've developed perfect equanimity, which is a combination of the equanimity that comes from samatha and the equanimity that comes from insight. And you will have mature insights into all three characteristics. When you, when those come together, when you have mature insight, remember I said people can have a Magapala or Darsana Marga experience, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work if you don't have mature insight into the three characteristics. If you're out of balance, you got one really clear, but the other two no. You can have that experience, but it's not going to make you into a stream matcher. Needs to be mature insight. And you need equanimity. The equanimity is what's going to, more than anything else, allow that experience to happen. Insight's going to make it happen. Equanimity is going to allow it to happen. Um, and what happens in that experience is your mind's constantly doing its thing, creating a world. You know, if you're familiar with the links of dependent origination, they whip around, you know, over and over again, many times every second, hundreds of times every minute, you know. And there's the middle link of craving. <coughs> what happens is your mind is doing that. And it comes up to the point where there's been a sensory experience that's produced a pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feeling. And then craving is about to rise in response to that. And your mind says, not you, because there's no you there anyway, but a mind that has accumulated enough insight and that also is in a powerful enough state of equanimity. Equanimity is exactly the opposite of craving. Craving is a reaction to events with desire or aversion. Equanimity is non-reactivity. When you have enough equanimity, it's possible not to go into craving. And if you have insight, you won't. So what will happen is the mind will stop. You ever heard that phrase, stopping the mind? So it would be very true if we said what we're trying to do is learn to stop the mind. Stop the mind. What you're doing is you're stopping the mind's endless process of creating its own reality by breaking the only link that can be broken, which is the one of craving that leads to clinging and becoming. And when you do, the mind stops. In that moment, you there is a total extinction of craving, which is, by the way, the definition of what Sanskrit and, and uh, Pali word? Nirvana. Nirvana. That's right. You have an experience of nirvana. You have a complete cessation of craving. You also have a complete cessation of mental formations, which is another way that nirvana is defined. Okay? And, you know, of course, suffering and everything else go along with it. So what we're talking about is the Magapala experience or Darsana Marga experience is an experience of nirvana. The mind has stopped. There is no craving. 
all mental formations cease, yet you are conscious. And this consciousness is a very important part of it. Although sometimes people can't remember it. Once again, it depends on the practice they're doing, whether they can remember it or not. But when the mind stops, yet the mind is conscious, it gives all the different parts of the mind a, an opportunity to directly see that all of this fabrication had been going on. When the fabrication stops, then for the first time it's possible to really appreciate the fabrication that was going on. It's like when you flip the switch on the movie projector, right? You see what's really there. Oh, a light shining on a silvery screen. Right? Uh, it's an opportunity to see the truth. When there's no craving there, it's an opportunity to understand the relationship of craving to what we experience. So it's the culminating insight experience. As an experience of nirvana, that's the culminating insight experience. Now, if you have that, and if you're in a place, if all of the insights are mature, then during that moment, at the very deepest level in your mind, everything's going to gel, and you're going to see things in a completely different way, permanently. And that's what makes it stream entry. Before then, you had these insights, and you're doing work on yourself. But it wasn't complete yet. And because it wasn't complete yet, you could get in situations and stop practicing or whatever and undo the work that you'd already done. The parts of your mind that had attained a new understanding could be essentially coerced by the rest of your mind that didn't get it yet to go back to the old way of generating your view of reality. But when enough of your mind, it's a critical mass, it's not every part of your mind, but when enough of your mind, when that critical mass is reached, that enough of your mind understands, aha, it's this way, it's not that way, then you are permanently changed. And you're a stream entrant, and you achieve the first stage of awakening. Um, there's a few things along the way that I wanted to address. Okay. In that moment, whether you're conscious of it or not, if you're doing a practice that involves focusing on objects, when the mind stops, that's consciousness without an object, there's nothing to register. So, five minutes later, you don't remember anything happening. And so, any kind of meditation practice that leads you to this point and you're still focusing on the rising and passing away of object, what you'll end up describing to your teacher, for example, is, I know there was a gap, but I have no idea what happened. There was just this gap. and But afterwards, I felt so good. I'm not supposed to tell you that that's what it's like, but <laughs> not worry. You're not going to try to fool anybody. There's nothing for you to gain by it. On the other hand, if you're doing a kind of meditation practice where your focus is on observing the mind itself, you will be fully, totally conscious when 
you enter this state of nirvana. And you'll remember it very clearly. You won't know how to describe it. You will most likely describe it as a pure consciousness experience, or a PCE, as it's known in the literature. <laughs> so you can have a gap, or you can have a PCE, depending on how you're practicing. And if your insights were right, then you'll be permanently changed. If you have a PCE or a gap and your insights aren't ripe yet, um, it was fun, but you have to go back to work. You're not there yet. The other thing is, this is a culminating insight, so it does a whole lot of work at once. That's really quite wonderful. But as I said, you don't need that. If, in a, if you have a lot of insight experience, and it accumulates, and through your practice you're cultivating equanimity, what can happen is essentially that the analogy I use is you can peek under the screen enough times to know what's on the other side without having to have the whole screen torn aside. And this sometimes happens with people. And so they are more of a gradual realizer but they're changed in exactly the same way and they'll manifest exactly the same characteristics that we talked about earlier. And there seems there's one other thing that I felt like that I wanted to elaborate on that I had passed over. So, um, equanimity. The two kinds of equanimity. Now, they're not mysterious. In samatha, samatha is a state characterized by joy, tranquility, and equanimity. Through stability of attention and mindfulness, you have experience of powerful joy arising and permeating your mind, which is very disturbing for a while. It's wonderful, but after a while it gets old. <laughs> then it matures and it becomes tranquility. The mind's still in a state of joy, but it's now in a tranquil state of joy. And this produces equanimity. The opposite of equanimity is reactivity to pleasant and unpleasant experiences. When your mind is in a state of joy, peace, happiness, bliss, how reactive are you going to be to something that feels good or feels bad? So that is the equanimity of samatha. The stronger that you, you have cultivated this internal sense of joy and happiness and tranquility, the more equanimity you have, and the less you are, the less your mind reacts with craving to the experiences that you have. That's one kind of equanimity. The other kind of equanimity is the equanimity that comes from insight, and that's an actually a stronger form of equanimity, but not as much fun. Uh, the equanimity that comes from in, insight comes from the more fully and clearly you realize the world just is not the way that you thought it would be, that there is nothing that you can cling to, that every attempt to cling to it will only cause you suffering, that produces a kind of non-reactivity too. It's a bit of a helpless, hopeless kind of reactivity. I mean, you, it's experienced subjectively as uh, it's called the knowledge of misery or despair. 
but it definitely produces a strong equanimity. The other, the equanimity that comes from insight into no self, into emptiness of self, is that the more and more clearly the mind understands that this self that could be nurtured and cherished and taken care of and satisfied and gratified and protected and all this other stuff is an illusion, the less likely this mind is to go to all of that trouble. And so that produces an equanimity. And I think the equanimity that comes from knowledge of suffering is pretty self-evident. The degree that you understand that grasping and clinging to things that are empty for the sake of a self that's empty can only have one result. And you've seen over and over again what the result is. So that produces equanimity. The combination of the equanimity of samatha and the equanimity of insight is incredibly powerful. Powerful enough to stop the mind. You picture the mind as a monkey swinging through the trees. As soon as it lets go of one branch, it grabs the other one, and grabs the other one, and grabs the other one. And the equanimity can be strong enough that, no, I'm not going to grab it again. And, and the mind stops. You have an experience of nirvana. So that's the mechanics of how you become awakened. And so anybody who needs to leave, you can. But I'm going to entertain questions from anybody who wants to stay. Yeah. What was the word for the equanimity of insight? So is there a... It's not a separate word. Oh, okay. Upeka. Upeka, and it refers to both the equanimity of samatha and the equanimity of insight. Yeah. So, uh, so why is it that the mind has evolved this way to be swinging through the branches and then causing these illusions that we're trying to see our way through? So the wonderful, amazing, lovely, interesting, fascinating creatures like ourselves and dogs and cats and deers and mountain lions and mice and everything else could exist. The function of mind is to create this illusion to to do all these things to sustain the process. Um, the so it's, whole it's, it's, like, it's like the simplest construct yeah. of reality is what the mind has basically right. built and that simple construct then that's, that's gets us into all this other stuff. The mind exists yeah. for the sole purpose of ensuring the survival, well-being, and reproduction <coughs> of the hunk of stuff that the mind resides in. That's its whole purpose. It's a selfish gene to the... Yeah. One way of putting this is, is you know, the, the uh, survival, uh, <laughs> the survival, well-being, and reproduction of the individual. It is, that is what has been described as the wheel of samsara. The endless cycle of birth and death. The mind exists to perpetuate the endless cycle of birth and death. You would not exist if it hadn't been for the mind, because your parents were driven by their mind and its illusions to do what's necessary that you're here. And so it goes all the way back, far as you want to go. <laughs> so that's the purpose of mind. The wonderful thing is, as human beings, 
and this is not true of dogs and cats and deer, not mine, is that as human beings, we can, we have minds that can go to another level and no longer need to be driven by illusion, compelled by desire and aversion, and suffer. If you wonder why we suffer, suffering is the rudder that makes us go this direction rather than that direction. It's the whole purpose. Craving is the engine. Suffering is the rudder. And it's all for the sake of keeping this whole thing happening. Yes. Is the reason that we we start out with objects like breath or something like that is it just too difficult to see this directly without instability? It's too difficult to watch the mind and then watch this happen. Repeat the next question. Yeah, uh, repeat the question. So, is the reason that we start out meditating with an object because the mind can't see these things directly? Yeah, if we look at how the mind behaves, one of the biggest obstacles to seeing anything clearly. I mean, even the biggest obstacle to learning something in school or understanding how your neighbors function or your partner works or anything like that is the constant, the instability of attention. You can't keep your attention on things long enough. if, If you can't, you can't ever come to understand them. And so there... The more stability of attention you have, the easier it is to see the way things really are. Because the constant movement of attention makes that very, very difficult, obscures it enormously. Um, On the other hand, there are people who have never practiced meditation who achieve insight and achieve awakening. So it would be a mistake to say it's the only way it can happen. But the whole system, the whole Buddhist system of practice is based on a profound understanding of human psychology and a set of very specific techniques that deal with the way an ordinary person's mind works to train it to become a different kind of mind that is far more likely to see things the way they really are. So if you practice the 10 stages of meditation, you're systematically training your mind and cultivating certain mental abilities. You can become awakened at any stage, stage one, stage 10, or anywhere in between. But the indisputable fact is that the more you keep practicing, the more likely it is to happen because you're cultivating a mind that is more capable of of seeing things that way. So that's why we start out with objects. But, as I'm sure you know, there's some methods that don't. There's the Zen method, which doesn't start out with object. But it, it achieves the same thing in a different way. It's, it's actually not nearly as different as it appears to be. The mind has got to get to a place where the things it normally does that obscure us from understanding are no longer in the way. And so we started out with the very simplest one, you know, with your eyes. Can you see anything clearly if your eyes are constantly moving and they don't stop for a second? You can't. You know this. And your mind's exactly the same way. If your attention can't stop running around all over the place, you're not going to have the opportunity to 
achieve any deeper understanding of the world around you. So there's sort of a minimum level of stability that, that you know, is necessary. And then the more stability you have beyond that point, the easier it's going to be. Mindfulness. Mindfulness is using the power of the mind effectively, because we have two ways of knowing, through awareness and attention. And most of us have a limited power of consciousness, and if too much of that power goes into focusing our attention on something, like the person we're mad at or how bad we feel about something, we totally lose awareness. So we don't have advantage of half of our cognitive apparatus is turned off. Cultivating mindfulness is increasing the power of conscious awareness and training your mind so that you have powerful awareness and focused attention at the same time. And then goes the next step beyond where this awareness, instead of having this awareness, you know, keeping me apprised of the neighbor's dog barking and the traffic on the street, it keeps me apprised of what's going on in my own mind. That's introspective awareness. So what is, do you see what I'm saying? It's just a systematic process of, and, and you can look at it and say, well, is any particular part absolutely necessary? No. Is, are all of them absolutely necessary? No. <coughs> but they're all going to move you in the right direction, and, and the more you cultivate them, the more quickly you're going to move in the right direction. Does that answer your question? Yeah. I guess maybe what's motivating is just, gosh, this, this whole thing about seeing creating sounds so interesting. It seems like, gosh, I might go right there. Just watch, see if you can see. Well, you can do, there, there's a very important practice that you can do, which is observing dependent or origination. You can see, but it usually happens so quickly that you can't see, you can't see how sensation leads to feeling, leads to craving, leads to clinging. But the more refined your mind becomes, then you can see, well, there's actually two things that happen. One, your mind speeds up, makes it easier to see something happening really quickly. But the other is, as you're applying mindfulness to these things, the process in your mind actually slows down at the same time. So these two together make it a lot easier to see what's actually happening. And you get to the place where you see the craving arising. And you can respond to what you see. Yeah. If a person should arrive at enlightenment, do they still continue to practice? Yes. Uh, the question was, does a person who achieves enlightenment still continue to practice? What I've described to you is achieving only the first stage of enlightenment. And there's so much more than that. And it's classically presented that there is a final stage. Uh, but uh, I have serious reservations that that's true. And I think, I think one of the reasons that the Buddha kept, him, kept meditating right up to his death is he never stopped becoming more fully awakened. The reason, so, uh, um, why is, so why is seeing as things as separate, why does that cause suffering? Is it because there's mental dissonance? Well, no, it, it causes suffering because you see something as separate, and then you feel like you can hold on to it, or you can obtain it, you can grasp it. 
you know, and, and, and this, is, this is really a very simple, simple level. You, you go through your life thinking that you're going to get these things and they're going to make you happy. But when you, what happens when you get them is that uh, they don't make you as happy as you thought. And after a little while, they don't make you happy at all. Or you lose them, they disappear, whatever. You see, their true nature is that they never were separate things, so they had to pass away anyway. But not only that, they never were separate things. So your happiness wasn't coming from that thing anyway. Your happiness was coming from an interaction in your mind in response to the experience of that thing. And no matter how hold you, how hard you hold on to the thing, your mind's going to continue changing. And so you're going to have a mind that no longer experiences the yeah. same satisfaction. Right. Yeah, so it's, it's a sort of form of dissonance. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, there's definitely a dissonance there. But it's not that you're suffering because there's a dissonance. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but the dissonance is definitely there. So. Brain's full? <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually so that there's two minds then. There's a mind that basically has developed this world that we operate in, and then we're trying to develop a second mind that's seen through that mind of the true nature of things. Well, uh, and that could that could seem messy and complicated, but uh, an important thing is to realize that there isn't a mind. Right. There's not even two minds. There's right. many, many minds. Right. And it's they they interact, and even the mind that holds to one view today, parts of that can be, become the, the mind that holds yeah. another view tomorrow. So, so when it stops, they all stop? The mind doesn't stop being mind, but the mind stops its fabricating. Yeah, when you hit that pause button, everybody <laughs> stops instead? Uh, well... It seems like it, but as you go along, you realize that not quite everybody. And if it was everybody, then there wouldn't be multiple stages of enlightenment. But it's, as I say, it's a, it's a critical mass of everybody. It's not the same critical mass that changes, but a critical mass of parts of the mind has to all stop at the same time for you to have the experience of nirvana. And a different critical mass of parts of the mind has to fully assimilate the new understanding in order for it to be a permanent change. Yeah. You talked a great deal about everything that we're going towards and what it would look like the closer we get. Yeah. And really what we have to do, if I understand this correctly, is breathe in a little more than that, because you could be in a coma and breathe in and breathe out. Okay. <laughs> you have to observe. <coughs> it's a really, it's ultimately about observing your mind. So you give your mind the task of staying on the breath, and what you discover is that it doesn't. It won't. If your mind did, you probably wouldn't learn anything new. You'd say, okay, sat there for three hours. <laughs> All my mind did was watch my breath. But it's the fact that your mind doesn't do that, that you end up exploring and understanding your mind. Your meditation object is ultimately the mind itself. Because your mind 
you we go back to the discussion of the five aggregates, your mind is everything. All there are is sensations and everything your mind does with those sensations. So if you want to understand the nature of reality, you have to start by understanding the nature of the mind. It's critical to know to do that and to do that well. Yeah. Or you can't truly proceed. So the way we're going to continue with our discussions over the succeeding weeks and months, we're now going to start getting into the beautifully choreographed process for bringing yourself to the place of, of having these inside experiences, understanding what they're trying to tell you, and, and the culmination of that in a profound, deep inner change. And we did already talk about this path being good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. It's you're going to you're going to experience enormous benefits long before you achieve the first stage of awakening. It just it starts out good and it just keeps getting better. If you go slowly enough, it won't seem like there's much changing. <laughs> so, if, if, if you need to have a wow feeling, then practice in a way that gets there quicker. Because <laughs> otherwise, seriously, what happens is you think, oh, I've been practicing for three years now, I don't know, it's made that much difference. But if you honestly compare the self you are now with the self you were three years ago, well, yeah, I'm really a lot different. But then it would have changed anyway. What's that? It would have changed anyway. It would have changed anyway. Okay, it has to do with the way that it changed. Okay. And I'll say this, closing remark. Any path that you follow, any path that you follow, if, if, you, don't, if you don't change in a way that's getting better, look for a new path. If you don't find yourself becoming a better person, a happier person, then what you're doing isn't working. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.